I know you. You are afraid to speak up. You are scared of what other people think of you. And you blame yourself for what happened to you. I know how it feels because I've been there. If you found me, I'm so grateful you are here. This podcast will give you hope. And I'm your host, Anna Ditchburn. I'm going to hold your hand and provide the guidance that I needed the most. It's time for you to find your why and turn your experience into your superpower. So lock your door, put your headphones in, and enjoy. Johanna White, welcome to the world's best trauma recovery podcast. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. It's my absolute honor to have you here. Joe, when we met, and it's been like a couple of weeks, I know you. <laughs> when we first jumped on our call, I just, I saw you as such a, a bundle of joy, such a positive person with a huge goals um, and with amazing mindset. I'm just wondering, why is joy so important in our life? Way to jump in right with a core question. <laughs> Joy is, I have discovered, the antidote to uncertainty and to fear. Like through my life journey and various things that have happened, which we will get into much in this episode, I'm sure, I battled a lot of fear. And then I realized that what I was really afraid of in each of those situations was of losing my happiness or of losing my joy. And when I realized that, it became obvious that I had the opportunity to choose joy no matter what was going on in my life, no matter whether I was almost dying or fully living, I could choose joy. And when I realized that, it just crushed and crumbled the fear that had plagued me most of my life and fear that caused almost as many symptoms and problems as actual circumstances did. And I suddenly just came awake to the fact that I had been afraid because I was striving for certainty all the time. I wanted to be certain of outcomes of my future, of my health, of my body. And things happened in my life that opened my eyes to the fact that actually we just have today and certainty is an illusion, but we spend so much of our time working for it, striving for it, worrying for it. And when, when I realized this, I discovered that certainty is never going to happen, but that joy is the antidote and uncertainty causes fear and fear causes half of the problems in our life. <laughs> and so choosing joy is one, what kept me alive during a brain tumor battle and helped me not take the doctor's word as the last word and helped me look beyond that and um, become victorious through that process. But choosing joy also just yeah, it laid waste to the fear. It opened up all of the opportunities in my life and I was able to move into my potential because I was no longer afraid. So that is why that concept is near and dear to my heart. 
a, a few years ago when COVID first happened and the whole world spiraled into uncertainty, everyone got a chance to learn the lesson that I learned eight years ago with a brain tumor, <laughs> which is I thought I had a lot more control than I actually do. And nothing is certain. And some people let that drive them deeper into the ground, into fear, and they curled up and they waited for certainty to come back. But for the people that started to pick up on what I had picked up on, they made massive strides in life, in business, and in uh, reaching others and being a light in the world because they chose joy as it's like people say, you know, you fall in love or you're not in love, but I believe you can also, you choose love every day. I think joy is the same way and it completely changes your life and how you impact others when you make that choice. You just nailed it. You answered this question even better than I expected (laughs) (laughs) because you are so right. We are choosing being happy. We are choosing to have joy and love in our lives. And some things you, we can't control, but we can control how we respond to those things. Yeah. And you, <laughs> you are talking about fear. Where did it come for you? Well, I was an anxious person as long as I can remember, which sounds silly. What does a child have to be anxious about? I lived in a safe-ish, like a safe middle-class home. I I didn't truly have enemies or something to fear in middle-class America, but I was anxious all of the time. I had stomach ulcers as an elementary schooler. <laughs> I got so anxious about not being able to understand my math homework that I actually got stomach ulcers. And <laughs> I used to think I was going to throw up a lot in middle school and high school. Like I'd be late for a class and I'd have to run and get a drink of water because I was so nervous about being late. What were they really going to do? Give me a tardy. It's not like they were going to line me up and execute me for being late. But I was. It was just such a deep rooted emotional response to almost everything. And so when I asked myself, like, where did that come from? I knew lots of kids that just lived and they <laughs> didn't even think to be anxious. It probably comes from my my background growing up in a what started out as just a small church, but turned into much more of a cult where the pastor was constantly preaching from the pulpit that if you didn't do this exact thing, you were going to be outside of the will of God. You were going to miss out. Like if you miss a sermon, you're never going to hear that word again. And you're going to go to hell. Probably this goes to hell. This goes to hell. Like always driving home the fear. You probably don't even know what the will of God is, but you need to be in it and don't bother to listen for it. I'm the only one. He's the only one that could hear God (laughs) and, and tell you. And, and if someone was brave enough to leave the church then they would immediately preach from the pulpit about how wicked and evil they were and how they were into witchcraft and they were into like, and as a child, I desperately wanted to be good. I was born a goody two shoes. (laughs) And, And so this feeling like I could never quite even trust myself, my trust in, in my own motives was completely eroded. 
constantly doubted. I got rebaptized like 20 times because I wasn't actually sure if I was saved. How do I know? And just this constant little bits of anxiety. And, you know, the, the crazy thing was they taught a lot of the Bible, but they twisted it and they definitely used it just to control and keep close. Like it got to where you don't go to movie theaters because something evil might jump on you or don't go be around other people because they're like, they're wicked and it might contaminate you. I don't even know. I was pretty young, but those were the kind of things that I picked up on whether they actually said those things or not. Those were the things as a little child that I heard. And so, but I thought that I was like a really great Christian and that I was at the one church that was doing it right and all of these things. And then when I was like 13, my parents finally got brave enough to say, this is not right. And then they confronted the pastor who had done some really terrible things all in the name of God and said, that is not God like you need to change this. And he said, Nope, either I'm leaving or you're leaving. And he essentially kicked out like half of the church. And I went from this childhood where I was anxious. Sure. Didn't know why, but at least I thought I had this foundation and that I was on the right path and that I knew what was right and what was wrong to all of the sudden overnight. Like I remember when night, my parents said, don't come to church with us tonight. We're going by ourselves. You stay home, which was really weird. I always had to go every time there was a service. I was there. We didn't even go on vacation. I didn't plan for college because I was so sure that like I needed to do something and I wasn't sure what, but surely going off to college, I would drift away or something. So I didn't make plans for the future. I didn't make plans (laughs) for life at all. And because you don't do that when you don't trust yourself to be able to make any decisions. But then that night, my parents, obviously I was still young. They knew something and they went and then came back and just essentially said, we're never going back. And I was shifted my entire world because up to that moment, all of my friends were there. I was homeschooled up till that point. So I didn't have outside really outside influences or anyone like that was my friends. That was the people that I loved and who loved me. And then all of a sudden they're gone and we're never going back. And, and it's because they say that we're like, I know what's happening. They're going to be now saying that we're evil and witchcraft and all of this stuff. And like, we still lived in a pretty small town. So sometimes I would see them on the street or in a store and you know, the last time we had been together, it had been fellowship and friends and we're family. And then all of a sudden I'm passing them on the street and they look the other way and literally run inside. And all of this just crumbling. I thought I questioned myself before. Now I'm like, am I wicked? Am I horrible? Uh, what did, what happened? Like, and, and so it just took everyone in my life for the most part. And all of a sudden they were gone, including my sister. She was dating a guy at the church. And so she chose not to come with my parents. And that was 
like I saw her a few more times over the years and it just got harder and harder to connect to the point that now she just won't have anything to do with us to the point that eight years ago when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, someone managed to communicate with my sister because they thought she would want to come see me in the hospital. And instead she told them that it was my fault and I brought it on myself because I was so wicked. (laughs) That's really harsh. That's, that's really harsh. Um, And you know, very often our family are our biggest teachers and, and our childhood is the foundation for skills and um, uh, beliefs that we learn. What are the, what are some of the positive learnings have you get from your childhood now when you look uh, through your, (laughs) through your own eyes? Yeah. Well, at the same time, like that story, I think is responsible for a lot of just the vague anxiety and fear. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, my parents were building a really strong foundation in my life of just love and faith, which that faith, again, saved my life years later. And this confidence, even though I questioned all of my motivation, I had a lot of confidence in something about myself, some sort of just confidence that I was put on this life to do something awesome. And I don't want to settle for hanging out with people who want any less. So like when I was in seventh grade, my parents finally decided I was a little too unsocialized (laughs) and they essentially (laughs) threw me to the wolves with the very best of intentions and said, you need to have friends, make friends. You're going to public school. The best school ever. Mm -hmm. Life school. Just throw you in the ocean. (laughs) Yeah. In seventh grade, which all of the little wolf packs of girls formed in sixth grade because they came in from all the different elementary schools, made Mm -hmm. new packs. So now they've got all their little packs and I'm like, hi, can you be my friend? (laughs) The hardest thing ever. I do not know myself. My parents said I need to make friends. So you wouldn't be my friend. <laughs> and I alternated between this just desire for friendship and this disdain for the fake friendships that I found instead. Mm-hmm. I was able to have been in a situation where I grew up pretty independent, riding my horse and playing outside and swimming and like being this active, self reliant child who knew how to make anything fun read every book in the library. Basically, we didn't even have a TV until seventh grade, probably. So I didn't rely on entertainment. I was the entertainment. (laughs) And I knew how to have fun. Even then, boredom was not a thing that ever happened to me. And then I entered this world of public school. And I long for friendship. But what I see instead, are these girls that are like, besties with this girl in one classroom. Oh, I love you. Let's hang out. Yeah. And then they leave the classroom and one of the girls is in the next classroom with a different girl. And they're like, so-and-so did this, did this. Like, I hate that girl. Like, "Ah." and talking behind their back. And me as an outsider, I was, I don't know, cursed or blessed (laughs) Mm -hmm. to have that outside perspective. Like I had not been in this. I didn't crave popularity I just wanted a couple of good friends, which I did not get in school. I, <laughs> I, it was a constant battle that became a cycle that 
I struggled with until probably a few years ago was just this desire for genuine friendship. Instead, finding a lot of the like superficial out there and therefore just rejecting the concept entirely and being a prickly wall. Like if I can't have real friendship, I just don't want to bother. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs backstabbing bitches in their life? Not me. (laughs) Unbelievable how you... You came to this realization being so young. And I I think that was part of you. You asked what was the good parts of my childhood and what were the lessons? And that was one of them. Now, granted, it created its own wounds that then through lots of mindset work the last like four or five years. And actually, again, since the brain tumor, like I started letting go of a lot of the, the things that held me back. And that was one of them because it keeps you from connections and partnerships and collaborations and all of the things that are making my business amazing now is because I can trust women and, (laughs) but I can recognize the good ones now, like even on zoom, you get in the call comes on the first time I saw you, I just grinned ear to ear, like immediately she's a real deal (laughs) and I can't wait to connect with her. But yeah, that foundation and that I realized I had a really strong sense of self, despite the anxiety and the maybe doubting my self-worth. I knew what I loved and I didn't want to waste time hanging out with people who had, I had nothing in common or they had terrible attitudes or all of these things. Like I had strong faith and strong sense of self. And so I just kind of kept waiting for the, to meet the people that would fit into that joy evolution, as I call it now. (laughs) And as I'm doing so much work in the last even few years, mindset work and all of this stuff, I am beginning to shift and change who I attract very intentionally. Like I, it's amazing. The women that are coming into my life are the women that I wished for in high school, but maybe if I had met them in high school, I wouldn't have been ready for it. And I would have self-sabotaged, probably destroyed a lot of great things. And because I didn't have that, it still served me well back then because I didn't care about being popular. So I didn't go along with the crowd. I didn't do the normal high school drama. I just basically like got in, got out (laughs) and moved on with my life. Not my cup of tea. (laughs) But my husband tells stories of his high school history and he loved it. He went to this really great um, private school and was like best friends with everybody and they're still all connected. So sometimes I definitely have pangs of jealousy. Like, oh, what if my high school had been awesome? (laughs) But you can't go back. You can only go forward. So, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I love it I love how you're saying you have to carefully choose people in your life to be with because you become an average of five people you spend the most time with or five books or five podcasts (laughs) Joe and now you are an award-winning graphic designer and visual branding uh, strategist what was the catalyst for such a amazing and high achievements? (laughs) Well, we already hinted at this a little bit earlier, but probably, not probably, the catalyst 
for going from that scared, always anxious person who just lived in uh, to be mediocre, to not rustle any feathers, to not make waves was a brain tumor. When I was, I was 25, I think it was about nine years ago, had gone to college twice, actually once for training horses and then got totally burned out and depressed because it ruined my love for horses, making it my job. So then I went back to doing menial work that I didn't love and finally hated that enough to go back to college again for design. And this time it stuck (laughs) and I loved it. But I still only got a job at like the lowest form of design you could possibly do at an agency. I was getting paid like 12 bucks an hour and I was checking ads for errors before it went to press Mm -hmm. (laughs) and doing some page layouts. That was it. Like, it's not really design. If I did get a chance to design something, it was like an assembly line. This needs to be done in an hour and we need... 10 of them and just like, go, go, go. And no, don't put any thought into it. Just throw the text on there and get it done. And so I worked at this agency and I stayed way longer than I should because again, I still lived in fear and scarcity and lack and everybody else there had the same mindset because this company was going under, had been for a long time. And they were just kind of like riding the sinking ship. (laughs) And, And they would say things like, oh, you're just lucky to have a job. The design market is flooded. Don't bother looking elsewhere. All of the great advice from inspiring people. People (laughs) we trust as well. Mm -hmm. But because I still had that anxiety mindset and just like wanted certainty and wanted to be safe more than I cared about success, I cared about safety more than I cared about potential security uncertainty. And so at least you have a job. It was certain and it was easy. It was so easy. It wasn't even using a single brain cell. (laughs) And sure, I got paid peanuts, but I got paid peanuts for doing basically nothing. And so I lived in that for probably, I was probably there for two or three years. And I might've been there quite a bit longer. In fact, some of the people that were still there when I did leave I've talked to them in the last year or two and they stayed until it went completely down. And then they just made a hop to a very similar company that is now also going down and they have done nothing. So I know had this not happened, that could have been me. I hope it wouldn't, but it could have been, but I was there working in this like horrible degrading environment where people get fired all the time. They don't care if you stay or go, but if they get fired, you get their work. You don't get a raise. You just get their work. And all of a sudden, one morning I woke up with this splitting migraine, just pounding through my skull. And I thought maybe I've been spending too much time in front of the screens. I don't know. Of course, I try to justify it because I'm a healthy person and I'm strong, physically fit. Like my identity was probably most in being strong. I didn't have much else going for me. but at least I was hearty. (laughs) And, uh, but I woke up with this migraine and it lasted for four days and I had to sleep in a closet because even tiny pinprick of light made me want to throw up. And when it left, I'm still thinking like, okay, this is just, I need to get my eyes checked and spend less time in front of the screens. But when it left, I had all of a sudden 
partial paralysis down my left side, my, this muscle, the sternocleidomastoid was completely atrophied. You couldn't see it at all, just overnight. The muscles behind my collarbone looked like someone had scooped them out with an ice cream scoop. And I couldn't speak because my vocal cords were collapsed on the left side and which we found out later. And honestly, I might've just tried to muscle through all of that. If it hadn't been for the, the throat, it also messed with the soft palate function. And all of a sudden I couldn't swallow. Food would come out of my nose instead of going down my throat. And once you've had Oreos come out of your nose, your life is never the same. (laughs) You are such a warrior, such a warrior just looking at you right now. (laughs) But what happened with that was, you know, finally when you can't breathe and you're choking, you eventually say, I got to do something about this. I went to the emergency room. They actually told me I was imagining it. They ran a scope down my throat and didn't see any obstructions. And I told them I was choking. And they said, there's there's nothing in there. They gave me a steroid shot, sent me home. And I still can't talk and I can barely breathe. And so then we went to an ear, nose and throat specialist who said, these are really weird symptoms. The only thing that ties them all together is your ninth and 10th cranial nerves. So I'm sending you to a neurologist. So he sent me to a neurologist who did all the MRIs and CAT scans. And uh, I'm still thinking like, okay, I have a pinched nerve. I am like. We always see it trying to down, downplay what's actually like, is happening. There's no way that this is anything major because I'm so healthy. And also I don't have insurance. <laughs> <laughs> like literally you can't be sick. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah. Health plan. Don't get sick. That was my health plan. Um, but I'm at work one night and I worked second shift at this agency because I was like the checker before I was the last stop before press. And it's like eight o'clock at night and I get a call and it's the surgeon himself. And I'm like, Oh, this can't be good. They don't call people themselves not at eight o'clock. And so he asked me, you know, are you sitting down? Is there anyone who can be with you? And I'm like, nope, I'm in a dingy office that I hate all by myself in this huge building. And uh, hit me with it. Like, what are we looking at? And he tells me that you have a mass. And so my immediate next question is, what does that mean? Like, tell me more. And he just, this is the first time that the answer is, we don't know. And that became the answer for the next two and a half years. We don't know. The results are inconclusive. Maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's smaller. Maybe it's cancerous. Maybe it's benign. Like, we don't know. And I thought up till that point that if you didn't know, you go to a doctor and they do all of these tests and they find out and then you know. And it might be good or it might be bad, but at least you have certainty because you know. Yes, yes. (laughs) I can and I, I did not get that certainty and I didn't get that. We did a brain biopsy. They drilled a needle through my skull three times to take out a sample. And after like, after that surgery, I wake up and they say, well, one, you woke up faster than anybody ever has. <laughs> I just kind of popped out of the anesthetic, grabbed my stuff and was like, let's go. What? <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> but they said 
um, the results are inconclusive. We didn't get enough of a sample and we risk like paralyzing a nerve or something if we try again. And so that, that was supposed to tell us if it was cancerous or benign so that they could like know how to proceed and all of these things. But again, they didn't get that answer. And so that began this storyline that does not go in a straight line. It has the top, which I will tell you first, what was happening in the doctor's offices and in the medical world and in that journey, but underneath that foundation of faith that had started when I was a child was running at the same time. And that part of the story is where I learned to choose joy and totally removed a brain tumor with faith alone. So, but first, as I went from surgeon to surgeon, each one like six months apart, you think it's an emergency when you have a brain tumor and you think you're dying and you need certainty and you mm-hmm. need next steps and you need help. And it's not an emergency. Apparently it's like, come back in six months and we'll do another MRI. And maybe they can help you with the cyber knife. Nope. Turns out that might blow it to pieces and cause brain aneurysms as it dissolves. So maybe they can help you with this physical surgery. Nope. Turns out too delicate of an area can't be done. Maybe they can help. And it was just like this up and down roller coaster months apart of maybe we can help. And then no, we can't. And each time they do another MRI and they'd say, maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's the same size. We're not quite sure. Cause it was on a different office so on a different machine every time. So that was happening, but what was happening at the same time over those two and a half years, as I followed the traditional path that everyone expected of me. And anytime I talked about, well, maybe I'm not going back to the doctor because this isn't working. Then everyone else's fear would land on me. Like, are you giving up? You got to keep going. Like you got to keep going back. And I knew at this point they didn't have the answers that I sought, but I wanted family and friends to think I wasn't giving up. So I kept going back. But what was happening at the same time was that shortly after the diagnosis, maybe two weeks, I was at my office and I looked around and I went, oh, I am not going out like this. If I don't know if I'm going to die or not, I am not dying, having left all of my talent on the table, never having tried, never having failed, never having done anything. What do I have to lose? And I thought I had all of this time to climb the ladder and be successful and all of these things, but maybe I have six months, maybe I have less, (laughs) but either way, I'm not going out like this. So I literally walked out of the office, walked down the street, started knocking on doors and saying, hi, I'm Johanna. I design (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Do you need stuff designed? (laughs) And that is how, how design by Joe was founded. Thankfully it's come a really long way since then. But I, so I quit my job and I started not just one, but actually three companies in that same year, because along with design by Joe, I also started a company called uniquely yoga, which sells a really cool yoga pants made out of recycled water bottles. I got into that because I wanted a way to encourage other women who might be going through the same thing. And like early on in the journey, when part of my left side was still paralyzed, I could no longer do my typical 
hard pounding, like CrossFit type of workouts. Mm -hmm. And so at first I just gave up completely because it seemed like no matter what I did, my body went the other way. So why bother trying? If I'm dying anyway, why am I wasting time at the gym? (laughs) But, But then kind of in the same moment where I realized I could choose joy, I realized that movement itself was a gift and it wasn't about the outcome. It was about today I can move and I'm grateful for it. So I found these pair of yoga pants that said, I can, I will on the leg. And I laid them out. I can, I will. And every day I'd want to give up, but then I'd see it and I go, no, I can. And as long as I can, I will. And so I'd move a little bit and do a little bit of yoga and my muscles started strengthening. Also what happened right after I got diagnosed, like literally the next day, I had just told my parents that night and we're all kind of in shock. And that next morning, my dad had called one of his best friends who was a chiropractor and he had just told him what was going on. And that dear man canceled an entire day, like 50 patients told them all don't come in today. (laughs) He showed up on my porch with an iPad mini brand new preloaded with um, a Bible app. And he had already saved every verse he had found that talked about healing. And he handed it to me and he said, this is tools for the battle. Grab your parents. We're going to fight. And he was like, took us for a walk. And he reminded me that um, he's just one of those very black and white in his faith kind of guys. Like if the Bible says it, I believe it. And most of the time it makes you want to punch him in the face. Uh, (laughs) But a lot of the times he's the only one brave enough to say things that need to be said. And Mm -hmm. he says it out of so much love for you that you're able to receive it. (laughs) And in this case, it was Johanna. You've told me your whole life that you believe in God and that you believe in healing, but you're not acting like it right now. And you're not talking like it right now. And you're winding yourself all up to go tell everyone, your friends, your family, everyone, this sob story. He didn't call it a sob story, but (laughs) that's what it was. It was going to be this like acceptance and declaration of, I have a brain tumor. Here's what's happening. I'm about to have these things go wrong. Like all of these things. And he's stopped me before I could. And he said, you've said your whole life, you believe in healing. This is your chance to act act like it. And so he challenged me to, um, and I was like, well, I can't lie. I I'm not that kind of person and I'm not going to act like I'm healed when I'm not. And all these things. He's like, no, it's not about that. It's our it's brain. About it's yeah. Um, yeah. Just be realistic, be realistic. <laughs> yeah. And, and me not owning this story. So he said, when you tell people for one, don't walk up and say, hi, I'm Johanna and I've got a brain tumor. And that's the most important thing about me. (laughs) It's not about that. But if it comes up and you need to tell them, say the doctor said this or the scan said this, or like, this is what they found, but stop owning it. And you, when you're speaking to yourself or you're speaking to others need to start saying, I am healed and reading these verses out loud and playing these verses at night and all of these things, like anything you can do. And so first I hated him and I ignored his, his advice for like a couple of weeks. And, and then I thought, no, I think he's right. And again, what have I got to lose? Because if I prepare to die, I'm definitely going to, but I can choose to live and I might look crazy, but if I die anyway, who cares? I'll be dead. <laughs> Nobody can make fun of me after I'm dead. 
You have nothing to lose. Why I have not nothing to, try? to lose. So why not try looking crazy? And so I would like play Psalms on my phone as I fell asleep at night because my head would be pounding and I'm struggling to swallow. And I would put in sermons that just talked about healing from any, like I just Google anything that talks about healing. I just put it in and let it play in the background because what I started to realize in the first couple of months was that the symptoms were bad enough on their own. But when I got anxious and when I got on that hamster wheel of I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more the pain increased. It was like, I could only focus on that spot on my head and I could only feel the pounding. And then I'd choke more and I'd go from could barely breathe to pass out on the bathroom floor. And I started to put two and two together because I may not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but eventually I catch on. And I realized that the fear was directly accelerating the symptoms massively. And I thought, well, I don't know what I can do about the tumor yet. I'm trying. I don't know what control I have or have not over this outcome. But what I do know is I can do something about the fear. And so I focused on that instead, because it's like, until this fear gets out of my head, I don't think I can heal. I can't even tell myself what I believe long enough because it's interrupted by you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. What about this? What about this? You're going to die. And so I focused on the fear instead. And first I tried to just not be afraid which I'm sure you know how well that works. <laughs> I This is the hardest part, I think. The hardest part. I want to know more about this. What, yeah, what so was... when you tell yourself not to be afraid, it's like telling yourself not to think of a pink elephant. It does <laughs> not work. In fact, you're more afraid and, and you're mad at yourself because you're trying so hard not to be and you are and mm -hmm. you're so now you're scared and mad. But you're still focusing <laughs> on fear. Not, not to be fearful, not to be fearful. Still You're still focusing fear. on fear. So I started to learn though that I could drown it out. And so that's when I would like just play those sermons on repeat and in the background. And I thought, if I can't get my own thoughts to think positive things, I'm going to put somebody else's thoughts in. I will take mm -hmm. their thoughts until mine are ready. <laughs> and so I just started playing these and, and speaking out the verses. And if I was feeling too weak, I would... Um, call a family member and they would read them instead <laughs> and they would stand with me and say like we don't think you're crazy we believe too and my symptoms started to get better and better and better and the muscles which they had said the atrophied muscles they had said that it was caused by now permanent nerve damage and even if they removed the tumor those mm -hmm. muscles would not come back that they were dead and they started to come back and like bigger than ever. My arm was working again. My body started working again. The symptoms got less and less. So I went to that first, like this was probably within the first six months of the diagnosis. Better, 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 better. But I still went to that first um, six month MRI where we're going to talk to another surgeon because I still want certainty and I still mm -hmm. want to know. And I'm so sure that they're going to do this scan and they're going to um, show me like it's smaller or it's gone because I feel so much better and my body's working again and my faith is up here. <laughs> we go in and we do the scan and they come out and they say, actually, it's the same or maybe bigger. And all of my faith just crumbles and I'm crying and sobbing all of the way home. 
And the doctor oh so helpfully told me like the next five symptoms I could probably expect based on growth. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the appointment almost healed and I went home with all of my symptoms back and woke up the next morning with the symptoms plus some. What are those symptoms for? What did he tell you? Oh, he told me like, um, you'll get numbness in your face. It'll start to push out your jaw. You'll lose vision in your right eye because the, the left nerves deal with the right eye and like all of these things. And so I woke up the next morning with the paralysis back, the choking back, and like my face was all numb and tingly and my eye was blurry. And I was overnight, 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 overnight. And I I went, what just happened? I mean, I know that clearly I'm not where I want to be, but how did that happen so fast? And so I licked my wounds for a couple more days. I got smart again. And I said, clearly there's a correlation both ways. Like Mm -hmm. I can believe in healing and get better. And I can also take the doctor's word and get worse. I get to choose. And so I started all over again. (laughs) And unfortunately, I wasn't good enough, fast enough to make it all disappear in one day again. It was, again, that slow plod and that slow journey and standing on healing. And and now it was maybe even harder because I had to believe against evidence to Mm -hmm. the contrary. Like there's physical evidence. evidence. Again, evidence in uh, inverted commas. Yeah. And, and my struggle was having grown up in this church cult thing where we were constantly questioned on our motives and like, are you really this? Now I'm questioning my motives in addition to that. Like, uh, okay, I don't want to tell people I'm healed when the scan clearly says otherwise, because with my motive, it must be to get attention or that I just am in denial or that I'm lying about. So I've got that whacked out, like fear-based, you don't even know your own self, but it's probably wicked. So then I'm like afraid of telling people I'm healed when the scan says that I'm not, because I don't want to be a liar and I don't want to be a fraudster. And uh, like, even though that church turned into a cult, which turned into a mess, I am still grateful for my foundation in faith and my foundation and my belief in God, because that was what then like got me to the healing. And I learned that what you believe matters, but what you do about what you believe matters even more. And this was my first time I'd ever had to do something about what I believed. So it happened again. Like I got almost all the way better, went back for another scan. Nope. You're not better left, less shattered, more confused, more like, why won't this darn scan prove it? I want to prove to people I'm healed. I don't want to be one of those Christians that just, there's so many out there that Mm -hmm. say this and this, and this got healed and all of these things for what purpose? I don't even know but they give Christians a bad name (laughs) and I didn't want to be one of them. And so I hesitated to even start telling my healing story because there was this scan that said otherwise, even though my body now aligned with what I was saying and what I was believing, it was coming back and it was fully perfect, stronger than I'd ever been before. But I kept going on my quest for certainty 
I kept like following this, not quite getting out of it, not quite getting all the way there. You needed some evidence. I wanted evidence Mm -hmm. on the paper. My body apparently wasn't enough. (laughs) I wanted it on the paper. And so finally, like two and a half years after the initial diagnosis, I met a surgeon who said, yes, I can remove this tumor. It's not that big a deal to me. I work in this exact area all of the time. Risks for the surgery are minimal, like maybe a little bit of nerve damage in your jaw. And it'll be a 10 hour surgery. Come back in three months. We will do this. And so at this point, my family and friends are kind of sitting me down and going, Johanna, why do you want to get this surgery? You're perfect. Like, why? Are you sure? And I was like, I want to never have to think about this again. I want to move on with my life. I don't want to be the girl with a brain tumor. I don't want to be the one like there had been some fundraisers done for me during this, which was amazing and a huge blessing. Like people helped raise money to cover some of the surgeries, but it was in the news. And so because of that, people that I was doing work for, they were questioning like, do we want to hire you? Are you going to be dead soon? (laughs) Like they didn't say it like that, but they would ask questions. How's your head? Before we book this contract with you, we want to make sure you're not starting our brand and then dying on us, kind of. And so I wanted away from this story. I w- Unbelievable. <laughs> they want to make sure that their six-figure investment is not going <laughs> to die on them. Die on them. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I wanted the certainty. So even though at this point, now my family and friends had switched from saying like, take the medical path to this is clearly working. Keep going. Stop worrying about the doctors. And now I'm like, "Ah, I'm going to get this damn surgery because I want to never think about this again. And so three months go by, we go for the surgery. Symptom wise, I'm still healthy and we get all prepped. It's like, five in the morning, because it's going to be an all day surgery. They've got, uh, haven't eaten in 24 hours, all the normal pre-surgery crap. And of Mm -hmm. course I haven't slept. I'm so nervous. And, uh, we get there, they've got me all prepped, tubed up. Anesthesiologist is there ready to put me under. And the surgeon goes walking in and he goes, wait, uh, I just took another look at your charts and I decided actually I can't do this surgery. Are you serious? the risks are way greater than I thought. I thought this, but now I've actually decided that they could put you on a feeding tube for life or in a wheelchair for life. And I can't do that to a healthy person. And so until the symptoms put you in a wheelchair, we're not going to help you. And I was mad. I can imagine. (laughs) What? I'm hangry. It's 5 a.m. <laughs> I haven't slept. I just did all of this prep. Couldn't you have looked at my chart Before. two months ago or one month ago or two days ago? Like, what? And also to like get my hopes up and then get my hopes down. And I was so just screaming mad. And literally, like, there's just little curtains in the hospital. I'm yelling. And you've been waiting for this operation for a long time. Yeah. And I thought, again, if you haven't found the through line yet, my quest for certainty was still strong at this point, Mm -hmm. despite all of the evidence, the good evidence that was happening in my life. I just Mm -hmm. wanted one more piece so I could prove it to other people, Mm -hmm. prove that I'm not crazy. 
prove that it worked, all of this. And so uh, he said, no, sent us home. Um, it was really actually ended up being a cool experience because we all went out, like all my friends and family had come from across the country to be there, to like be there when I wake you. up and stuff. So yeah. now we're all like, well, we have hotel rooms. Uh, we, what, what do we do? So we went out to breakfast and fried a lot. But while we we're sitting eating, this table overheard us and this guy turns around and he's like, I couldn't help overhearing. I'm a pastor and we're actually right now doing a um, series on healing. And could we pray for you tomorrow? Like, would you come to our church tomorrow? Could we pray for you? <laughs> wow. And wow. so- we're like, why not? We've got hotel rooms. We're here. So we went and like the whole church came up and just laid hands on me. And they were, they were already in the series and they were just all like fired up about healing. It was awesome. And then, then we went home and there was nothing like instant or crazy, like from that moment, but it was just one more confirmation that this is, this is your path. It's not what you thought it was. And so when the doctor said he wasn't going to do anything based on the scans, only on symptoms, I said, but they still wanted me to come back every six months to get a scan, call it watch and wait. And I called it, you want me to come back every six months so you can scare the pants off of me and crush my face again. And I don't think I can handle it. So no, thank you. I'm out. Well done. Well done, no girl. More, no more MRIs. I don't need to know what that stupid paper says. Mm -hmm. And when I finally said that and finally walked out there, then I was free for the rest of the healing to mm. begin. And I had already come so far and gotten so much back, but it just like fully restored. No more choking, except as I mentioned at the very beginning of this, Sometimes in rare occasions when I tell this story, it's like my body remembers and I'll start choking on the call, but not today because I'm I down with that too. Noticed, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all the way done. And so I was able to go from that need for certainty to realizing that actually certainty is just an illusion. And mm -hmm. it was in those early days when the fear was just crushing me and making everything worse and making all the symptoms worse that I forced myself to ask Johanna, what are you actually afraid of? And I wasn't afraid of dying. I realized I was afraid of living with a lesser quality of life. I was afraid of living in a wheelchair or living on a feeding tube or one of those things because I identified my identity was in being a strong person. Mm -hmm. And if I was this weaker person, I perceived weaker, um, that I wouldn't be happy anymore. And then I wouldn't be joyful. And it just like hit me like a ton of bricks that actually like right now I'm sitting here half choking. My head was pounding in that moment. I could actually choose to be joyful and just surrender. <laughs> and so my journey then became this combination. And I think this is what has led me to business success today. It has been this combination of massive action and then surrender. And it was like, oh, okay. I surrender the outcome. I just choose joy. You can't take that away from me. Guess what? Now I've got nothing left to be afraid of and we can get on with life. <laughs> and then, you know, that became my motto in my business. It became, it's now or never. Like the three years during the brain tumor, 
I felt victorious because I had managed to do what everyone said I couldn't do, which was not only quit my job, actually they wanted me to quit, but they wanted me to quit so that I could go on social security mm-hmm. and they could cover the insurance bills. Cause I, and I looked at that option for two seconds and thought, I mm-hmm. don't think I can do that because if I do that, that becomes my new mindset and I'll be three years down the road, still this like dependent person that I've already, by the way, been my whole life, like still living in my parents' basement, <laughs> not trying, mediocre, afraid of everything. I will still be that and it'll be three years later. And I have to think beyond this tumor. I have to think there is a future. And that Johanna is a badass. <laughs> and she she doesn't quit work when she's still physically able to work. And so I did quit, but then instead I started three companies. I felt like that was momentum and it was a burst. But then as time wore on, it I settled back into that habit of being mediocre, even mm-hmm. in my new business. Like I hit a income ceiling and could not get past it. And now it's like long enough after the brain tumor, this is probably four years ago, I'm starting to look at my business and going, huh, that's funny. I've made exactly the same amount four years in a row, even though I've raised my prices each year and like done different types of packages somehow, like within five to $10 made the exact same amount. Okay. This has to be a mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I got fed up. I was like, okay, before when I was first diagnosed, it was now or never. And I did something and I took that burst. But now I'm looking around. I was looking around saying, I did not come this far to only come this far. This is not the successful future I dreamed of when I said, there's a badass Johanna on the other side of this brain. <laughs> and so I, I w- like did all of the things. What will it take to get me unstuck? I'm going to try everything. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Four Hour Workweek. I went to Tony Robbins Unleash the Power Within conference and walked on hot coals. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. I did all of the things because it just shook me that I could have overcome so much and still become complacent so quickly. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't get the second chance to do nothing with it. And... One of the verses that got me through that journey from the very first day, in fact, I woke up with this verse in my head the night I woke up with the the migraine was, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And I Mm -hmm. thought, well, that's a funny verse. I'm not dying. I just have a headache. (laughs) But I hung on to it. And then when the doctor said, you very much might die, that verse became my promise. Like, nope. God told me otherwise before you decided to tell me I might die. He told me I'm not. So I clung to it, but I only got through the first part of it for those three, four years. I didn't die, but I didn't really live yet. (laughs) I started, started to dip my toe into life. But then when I hit that patch, like, okay, income ceiling and mediocrity again, I can't believe this is even a thing again in my life. I, I realized I wasn't living and declaring the works of the Lord. Like I wasn't telling this story. I had this amazing thing. And how many people needed to hear about this? How many people needed to hear not to take the doctor's word as the last word or that it does not enough to believe you've got to do something about what you believe. And I was sitting on it. (laughs) And then 
um, somewhere between Tony Robbins Conference One and Tony Robbins Conference Two, (laughs) (laughs) I learned to fall in love with my clients instead of with my products or services. And I learned to ask Mm -hmm. them how I could serve them better. And I looked around and went, they need this and nobody's doing it. Like people are doing a piece of it. Or you wouldn't think that branding can have a big impact on someone's life. But when it's done right and you create this most aspirational version of themselves in the physical world, it invites that human to live up and level up to their future self right now. And it shows their highest value to the world and allows them to become known and loved for what they have to offer. And like, it's so transformative and I get to be a part of that. (laughs) And I got brave enough to start saying, yeah, I'll, I'll add that in. I will be that, that like cheerleader for your most audacious self. And I'm going to take you through this whole journey. And it doesn't matter if it's, you would think it would be long. We're going to make it fun and we're going to have joy along the way. And we're going to eat this elephant one bite at a time. (laughs) We're going to have a blast. And I'm going to stop trying to shovel you off to other people for parts of the project because it's inconvenient or people typically don't want to pay for that or this. Like instead I said, no, I'll learn how to do it if I don't know how to do it and I will expand to meet their needs. And so I got out of that rut and along the way, luckily I started to realize the value of serving people, how they really want to be served, Mm -hmm. not in a selfish way. That's like what you think they need, but it's a combination of what you know they need and what they are asking for. And it's bringing their most authentic self and their most aspirational self together. (laughs) And so then I broke that income ceiling, like blew that out of the water and started becoming this quantum bunny. (laughs) As I realized that when I was undercharging for my own value, they weren't showing up. They weren't getting the value. And Mm -hmm. like, but to those, when I started to get brave enough to say, nope, I'm worth it. They started showing up and saying, I'm worth it too. And the results were astronomical. So I was like a little quantum pricing bunny over the last three years. And it it's like the last time I felt stagnant or complacent or that mediocrity was probably three or four years ago when I had that second shift, like, I didn't come this far to only come this far. And I know now that your ideal audience will happily pay to be part of your growth because growth is life. (laughs) And so now I'm no longer afraid to put myself out there less than perfect and, Mm -hmm. you know, say like, we're going to have an amazing outcome. There will be snags along the way. What do you know? We're going to fix it together and it's still going to be amazing. And So I have gone from fear, anxiety, mediocre Mediocre. because it was safe Mm -hmm. to I'm here to live life to the fullest. What do I have to really be afraid of that someone will tell me, no, you're too expensive. (laughs) Whatever they do all the time in, but you know what, if they have to tell me that they tell me in the best way, they're like, you're too expensive for me right now. 
but I can totally see why you're worth it. And I'm putting it on my vision board. And we're coming back to this because by this time next year, I will have manifested enough to make this happen. <laughs> and so then not only do I get to help them brand their dreams, I get to help them change their mindset in the first place and, and level up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of that because I went, I'm not going out like this. <laughs> Bravo. Well, Joe, you answered all my questions. <laughs> and then some. <laughs> Most of my questions. You know, I can resonate with your story where you were taking uh, an advice from your doctors and when you were believing what was happening to you because I went through 16 consecutive miscarriages and 10 different doctors in Australia would tell me, firstly, they couldn't find any physical reason why I was losing uh, pregnancy. So that's why I wanted to have this certainty. There there, should be something here. I can, you know, Mm -hmm. find any reason that I can treat, that I can get rid of, and then, you know, it's going to disappear. But there wasn't wasn't any physical reason. And then just recently, one doctor told me, "Uh, you know, one of your abortions, has damaged your reproductive system. And so your two options, or you're gonna go on a very hard hormone therapy, or you won't be able to have kids unless you get adoption, adopted or surrogate mother. And for a few weeks, I truly believed, well, I need to go on this therapy, which will completely ruin my health, or I will never become a mother. And you are such an inspiration for me because hearing your story, I started to believe, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) This is in my hands. This is, it depends on what I believe in. And honestly, I I just wanted to say thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for sharing this story. And thank you for inspiring me to believe in myself. You're so welcome. And I mean, your story in itself is so inspirational to so many other women. And, but I'm blessed that it has blessed you. And I will be cheering you on (laughs) with whatever route you choose to go. But I just know that the one you believe in is the one that will work. And that's why I believe that this podcast is so important because you need to find this person who will believe in you. If you don't have anyone in in your close surrounding, go and find this person. Borrow his or her belief in you until (laughs) you start believing in yourself. And it doesn't matter if nine people say it can't be done. Just listen to the one voice that says it can. And sometimes for a little bit, that voice has to be you. But... If you say it long enough, you'll find another voice. (laughs) And like Anna said, borrow it. That's what I did with the sermons and putting it in and just letting it play. Like I just borrowed their faith, said mine's not big enough yet. I'm just going to borrow yours. (laughs) And you are such an amazing example for for me uh, of the someone who turned their past trauma into their superpower. Joe, my question for you. What makes you different when you work with people? I know you've mentioned that you love them, but when they come to you, what what do they get? 
<laughs> what else do they get instead of a bundle of joy and love <laughs> careful uh, careful Anna you're going to get another really long answer because there's so many things my clients would say that makes it different but joy actually really is one of them helping them choose joy in the journey that mm -hmm. is one thing but also I am really good at helping them see what could be and in a physical way and and believing in them sometimes even more than they believe in themselves <laughs> and i <laughs> i believe that there is no shame in being the best that it's an amazing thing and so i welcome that and i welcome that in my clients and i welcome finding the ways to show them as the best i love taking people who are the very best at what they do and helping them look as good as they are so that they can be as delightfully expensive as they deserve to be. And I think in so many places, there's shame around that. Like you shouldn't want to be expensive. How dare you? How selfish? How this? How that? What I've learned is that when you charge what you're worth, you deliver a new level of excellence and the world needs more excellence. I create like magical worlds of my clients' brands that are, are like when you go to Disney and every single thing has been thought of and taken care of and you just feel the excellence in the air because they cared about the big details and the small details and they hired the best and they created magic. That is what I do different among so many other things. <laughs> but it's like a lot of my clients will say, honestly, I can't describe it. It is like magic. I don't know how it happened. I just know that I came to get a brand and I left transformed. I left as my future self right now. And the confidence that I have is through the roof because now not only can I see it and say it, I have the words to talk about it, but also everyone else can see it. And they're telling me about it. And like, so bestowing that confidence through the process. And again, with the joy, like it sounds a small thing, but how many people don't do what they need to do for their business or for their lives because it's a long, complex sounding, boring seeming, stuffy, overwhelming process. Yep. <laughs> and they're going to have to find 10 million people to bring it all together. And then it's only going to be somewhat consistent. And instead I bring it all together and walk them from the beginning to the end. And we have a blast. Like we're best friends halfway through. <laughs> we're already talking about how we can meet up in Italy for their next photo shoot or how we can be cheering their newly launched website from a deck in Greece and like preparing, like that is how much fun they're able to have along the process. And when they have joy in the process, the rest of their business goes better. They now have this thing that they're one, so freaking excited about. They can't help but tell the world, which creates its own momentum and its own growth right there. But they just feel like this thing that I thought would be average experience at best is actually something I can't wait to do again. <laughs> they come back and they're like, I know we just did my whole brand. But what else could we do? <laughs> so I had such a blast working with you. And it was the best thing ever. <laughs> and I can understand why 
I can understand your clients. And you, as you said before, we live once. Why not to live fully? Mm-hmm. Shine, yeah, shine your light brightly for others. Be an inspiration. And uh, being the best, it's not an eager thing, what I've realized from, from my own journey. And you can see world's best life optimization coach. <laughs> <laughs> it's my commitment to myself to become this world's best that people want to work with and transform people's lives. Joe, I want to start this, this sentence and I want you to finish it. <laughs> Anna, we've only known each other for two weeks. You want me to be finishing your sentences? <laughs> okay, I can do it. <laughs> First, I will ask you a question. Where people can find you? And then I want to start with your answer. One of the best websites you have ever seen is at... <laughs> designbyjoestudio.com <laughs> it's honestly one one of the best websites i've ever seen if not the best thank you yeah you can come get a little taste of the magical world that i build for my clients on designbyjoestudio.com there's a connect with me contact drop me a hello but if you just want to hang out and witness the magic, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook. My handle is at Design by Joe Studio and also on LinkedIn. Connect with me. I would love to hear about your biggest, most audacious dreams for your brand. And if I can help you get there, I will. And if I can do nothing more than cheer you on and tell you to dream bigger, I'm going to do that too. <laughs> awesome. Amazing. Joe, before we go, do you have any concluding thoughts? I just want to remind people that listening to things like this is one way that you are choosing that new voice. So if this is the only podcast that you listen to, go find four more (laughs) that encourage you in the way you need to be encouraged. It doesn't just happen by accident that growth, that change, healing does not just happen by accident. It's one tiny intentional step at a time. Sometimes you go the wrong direction. Doesn't matter. Take another step and keep like, keep pulling it in. I have now some of the most amazing people in my life ever that I could have never, (laughs) never dreamed of. And it's because I started changing my inputs, which started changing my outputs. And those outputs attract your dream clients and your dream friends and your dream relationships. So if you're scrambling and trying to get it and saying, why can't I just have this thing? Like for me, for years, it was amazing female friends. I just felt like I could not find it or they wouldn't last. But then... I finally started changing my inputs and my feelings of I'm not even worthy of having friends. What would they see in me? Why would people possibly want to hang out with me? (laughs) And changing that to I am joy. And you're lucky if you can hang out in a room with me because you're going to leave on fire. And just changing those inputs, change the outputs. And now they just find me. And I also find them, but I recognize them when I see them. So start changing those inputs, listen to more podcasts like this, or just binge on this podcast and 
you will get to where you want to be going. Well, I'm definitely on fire. Ladies and gentlemen, Johanna White. Thank you for being here today. I know it's not easy. If you are ready to take this journey all the way, I can help. To find more about my unique method of turning your past trauma into your superpower or how to connect with me best, go to annaditchburn.com. This journey isn't possible to do on your own. So make sure you like, subscribe and review the podcast so we can help more people like you. And if you have someone in your life who is struggling to overcome their trauma, this is something you can give them that truly can change the course of their life forever. We'll see you next time for another episode of the world's best trauma recovery podcast. And just remember, you are able to help yourself and you can do it right now.